0: Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. It's very important that we are in right relationship, rapport with God the Father because it is in a state of fellowship that God the Holy Spirit is working in us both to teach us and to help us to remember the doctrine that we have learned so that we can apply it because it is through application of doctrine that God the Holy Spirit works to produce spiritual growth in our lives and to advance us to spiritual maturity. So before we begin, let's... Have a few moments of silent prayer to use First 1 John 1, nine if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this privilege to fellowship together around the eternal truth of your word. That it is your word that is the light to all men and that it is your word that enables us to understand everything in life. It provides us that framework for understanding, evaluating every issue in life and being able to make decisions that are wise, decisions that come from a position of strength that we might be able to uh, do well in your sight, that we might be able to glorify you in the angelic conflict both in time and in time and in eternity. Now, Father, we pray as we study these things that you would help us to understand them, see how they relate to our lives, so that we might be challenged by them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to first John chapter two. 1 John chapter two, and we are going to begin an introduction this morning in this section to the doctrine of impersonal or unconditional love. This is a major theme in this first epistle of John and is one other reason why I believe that this epistle is John's expansion and commentary on the doctrine that the Lord Jesus Christ taught to the disciples in the upper room the night before He went to the cross. That's called the Upper Room Discourse. It began in John 13, 1 and extended through the end of John 16, followed by Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. The theme of that discourse had to do with the new commandment that Jesus gave the disciples that they were to love one another as Christ loved us, as He loved us. So this is... Um, a major theme developing in or developed in 1 John. Now, we have come to 1 John chapter 2 in verse 7 through 11. This paragraph is the final paragraph in John's introduction. John has a prologue in the first four verses introducing the theme of fellowship based on what the doctrine that they heard and saw in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity and deity. He then develops an introduction where he brings in the basic themes of the epistle that he will emphasize related to fellowship, how we walk, that is, and walking is a metaphor for the believer's life, walking in the light and not in the darkness. Dark, light represents Uh, consistency with God, His character. The only way we know about God is through His revelation of Himself. Light speaks of revelation. But it is not just walking consistent with the revelation that we have with, with the Scriptures. Because what the Scriptures reveal to us is who God is. The only way to know God is to study His Word. There are too many people in this world who think that they have Generated from the depths of their own experience and the impressions of their own soul and the profound intuition of their own mind think they know what God is like and what God ought to be like. And so the tendency for man, it's a form of idolatry, is to generate within our own thinking some concept of God and then worship that. Well, that's just an abstract form of idolatry and all kinds of people... Are very much in love with their own self-generated concepts of Jesus and God, and as soon as you come along and say, "Well, God authorizes capital punishment," to use one of the more extreme forms, people say, "Well, I just God can't be that like that. That's not my understanding of God. That He would." He would want to execute criminals. God is a God of luck. See, they've developed this abstract view of what they think God is, and then that becomes the controlling factor. They're not getting into the Scriptures and developing from the Bible an understanding of who God is, what God expects, who Jesus is, and what Jesus' character is like. And that leads to all kinds of problems in Christianity. We, that brings us to Paul, uh, John, excuse me, John's final point in the previous paragraph where he stated, "...he who says he abides in him." Abiding in him, we've seen through extensive study, is a technical phrase for remaining in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We describe the Christian life with a circle. That circle we sometimes refer to as being in fellowship. John uses the phrase having fellowship. It is the realm in which we are filled with God the Holy Spirit. When we are filled by means of God the Holy Spirit, we are to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, and we are to abide in Christ, or in Him. When we use the broader diagram where we talk about the fact that at the cross we enter into a relationship with God that has two dimensions. One is an eternal dimension. One is a temporal dimension. The eternal dimension is called by the Apostle Paul in Christ. That is a technical phrase in Paul's writing. Everywhere Paul refers to in Christ or in him. He is using it to refer to our position in Christ. This has to do with our eternal relationship with God. The instant of salvation, we're baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit, placed into union with Christ, identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are in Christ. In contrast to that, Paul uses I mean John uses the phrase In him, based on Jesus' use of the phrase in John 15, in me. See, John can't use the phrase in me because we're not in John. So he has to change it to a third person singular, in him. But John's use mirrors what Jesus said in the upper room discourse, so that John's in him is relating to our Temporal fellowship with Christ. Don't confuse the two. Now, this brings up an important point that some people fail to note, and that is that in the doctrine of inspiration, God the Holy Spirit so so overrides or superintends or manages the writing of Scripture through the individual human authors that without doing away with their individual personality, their individual vocabulary, their individual style, their backgrounds, their uh, uh, individual characteristics, he is able to guarantee that what they wrote was free from error. Now, that's important to understand. He doesn't override their individual styles, their individual vocabulary, their individual uh, talents, backgrounds, etc. So that when you read them in the original languages, you read Peter, you read John, you read Paul, you read Matthew, you read writers in the Old Testament, they write very differently. They have different types of vocabulary. And you have to understand uh, one of the key principles in Bible study and studying Greek is you have to understand that Paul's phraseology and Paul's terminology is different from John's terminology. It's the same way with pastors. Every pastor has a different personality. John had a personality that was much different from Paul's personality. Paul and John had personalities that were much different from Peter's personality. Spiritual gifts don't have anything to do with personality types. What happens among a lot of Christians in a lot of churches is they think that a pastor is a personality type. And so they have this idea that a, that a pastor acts a certain way, talks a certain way, always, uh, you know, hugs the old ladies and kisses all the babies and uh, is always uh, goes to the hospital, visits everybody and and always knows just the right thing to say and he never has any rough edges or is very hard. But that, that's just absurd. It's, it's an idealistic thing. You read the scriptures, there's some extremely harsh things said by different writers to their audiences at different times depending on the occasion. When Paul is writing to the Galatians, he verbally assaults them. I mean, you start off reading what Paul says to the Galatians at the very beginning of that epistle, it is almost as if he took the scroll in his hand and walked up to him and slapped him in the face with it. He's extremely harsh because they're out of line, whereas when he deals with others, Uh, He's much more tactful when he writes a personal letter to uh, Philemon about his runaway slave Onesimus. uh, Paul is very gentle in his approach and he's very persuasive in his approach it's much different because the issues are different so people so often think of pastors as as basically a one-dimensional type of people and then they find somebody a pastor that has a strong personality takes a stand on his word then they they want to react to that and say well there must be something wrong with him how can how can that person be a pastor they just don't understand what the bible says god uses all kinds of different personalities through which he teaches his word. And John is one personality, and I think that in many ways, John is probably very similar to our Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity. Remember, John and Jesus were cousins. So in their humanity, they shared certain genetic propensities. And I think that that probably played a part. I mean, I'm just speculating here, but it's based on, on its academic speculation, John writes much as Jesus talked, and I made this point before that in the Gospel of John. If you're reading the third chapter of John, if you can tell me where Jesus stops talking and John starts talking, then you're better than any Greek scholar I know, because it just there's such a smooth transition. John, remember, was a young disciple when he started following Jesus, and like many young men, they would imitate. They often imitate the style, the phraseology, the personality of the person that, that leads them to the Lord or the pastor that influenced this, influences them in a strong way. But in this case, you have John influencing his cousin Jesus, so there might have been a personality similarity or trend so that, so that John was not too different. So John comes to talk and write Much as Jesus spoke, this style, the way John develops his theme as we go through 1 John, I'll say this again and again, is very similar to the way Jesus taught and developed his theme in the upper room discourse. And he he talks about one subject. He'll talk about uh, the new command to love, and then he'll talk about knowing God, and then he'll talk about the person who loves God. God keeps His commandments, and then He talks about the Holy Spirit coming. Then He goes back and He ties that to keeping uh, the commandments, and so He weaves those themes together constantly, talking about one or two or three things, relating those, picking up a third subject or fourth subject, bring adding that in, much as you might weave a rope together, all just bringing one strand in one after the other and tying them together, and that's how Jesus developed in the Upper Room discourse, and that's how John develops. Through First John, so we see these themes all introduced in this introduction. So we learn that when when uh, John says he who says he abides in Him, that is claims to be in fellowship, claims to be in the right circle here, claims to be walking. Uh, other terminology would be walking in the light, cl- walking by God the Holy Spirit. Those are also synonyms. Anyone who claims to abide in Him ought to walk as Jesus walked. Now, the sad thing about modern American culture is we trivialize things. No matter what it might be, anything significant seems to get trivialized as soon as some uh, advertising agency gets a hold of it and they want to uh, have a 30-second commercial on television or on the radio in order to reduce something down, make it appealing and palatable, it's, it's trivialized. And that's what happens uh, often in Christianity, too. We're all products of this same uh, culture that tends to make things superficial and trivial. And we do that with Christianity. Some of you are old enough to remember, back in the late 70s, there was a, uh, no, it wasn't the late 70s, it was the early, mid-70s, about the time I started seminary, that a very well-known campus evangelistic organization started a a, a nationwide evangelistic uh, program called I Found It. And everywhere you went, you'd see these bumper stickers that said, I found it. And, of course, the reason was to generate some sort of curiosity so people would say, what did you find? you would say, well, I found Jesus. And so there were bumper stickers and there were billboards everywhere, I remember, That summer, I drove to Dallas for the first time to uh, matriculate at Dallas Seminary in the fall of 76. And as I drove into downtown Dallas, there was this huge billboard, red billboard with white letters. I found it. And uh, I always thought the Bible said that God called me. I didn't find him. He found me. But, of course, since when does accurate doctrine ever affect evangelistic practices in America? And the thing I learned that semester when I went to visit my friend Randy Price, who was living in an apartment off campus, is that he had been witnessing to a Jewish fellow who lived in that apartment complex. And this Jewish fellow made the comment and said, well, we have a lot of respect for God. We don't put him on a bulletin board or up on an advertising board or, or a billboard. And and that's what happens with America. We tend to trivialize these things. All the bumper stickers, honk if you love Jesus, and all of the other uh, trivialized things. And sometimes they represent sound biblical truth. For example, I've seen the bumper sticker that says that uh, uh, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. That's true. But those kinds of things tend to trivialize profound truth to the point where they become meaningless. People see them and they no longer have the impact that they should have. And this has happened... And another uh, phrase in the last couple of years, and people run around wearing these bracelets, and they wear T-shirts that have the initials, what is it, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And that's become a, a big thing, and then there's some non-Christians who have changed that and given some other uh, blasphemous meaning to the phrase. But you have lots of people running around talking, What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And they trivialize the concept. And the problem is that, as I started off in the introduction saying, is that most of these people are absolutely ignorant of the Bible. They're ignorant of doctrine. They don't know what Jesus would do because they haven't spent... Three hours in detailed study of the life of Christ, much less 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 hours you need to begin to really understand somebody. I mean, how can you make a decision based on what someone else would do if you don't really deeply, profoundly understand that person? And the problem today is most people are running around saying, what would Jesus do? They don't have a clue what Jesus would do. They just sort of roll up inside the the cocoon of their own ego and their self-generated idol of what they subjectively think Jesus was, was like, and then they make a decision based on that and say, well, that's what Jesus would do. To know what Jesus would do means you have to profoundly know Jesus. And we learn in 1 John 2... 3 through 6, that there are some ways to know if you know Jesus. Verse 3, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments, if we follow his mandates. That in order to keep his commandments, you have to know his commandments. You have to understand All the different mandates related to the plan of God for the Christian's life in the New Testament. All the different prohibitions and understand their interrelationship and the mechanics of the spiritual life. That is not something you learn in the first six weeks, six months, or even year that you're a believer. Unless you're involved in some serious Bible study where somebody is teaching you Uh, What the scriptures mean and what most people mean today by Bible study is let's all get together in some kind of a small group. And and they call it a spiritual formation groups or discipleship groups or whatever. And everybody is told to go home and read a passage, write down some notes, and let's come back and share with each other what we learned. Well, since nobody there knows enough about the Bible to fill a thimble, they all come back and share their ignorance with one another. And it's just a tremendous ego trip that 98% of Christians and churches are on. It functions in their Sunday school classes and everything else. And nobody knows Jesus. And then they all go home feeling good and feel like they're living their lives based on what Jesus would do. And John says that you have, to know him you have to keep his commandments, which implies that you have to spend a tremendous amount of time studying the word to know Know his word. We never learn about God directly. There's no intuitive hot flashes that tell us what God's like. We can't look inside of ourselves and generate some concept about God. We can only know God through his word as he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. So we have to do that. That's the emphasis on his commandments and his word here. Verse 4, the one who claims to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. If you claim to have a relationship with God and to really know what Jesus would do, and yet you're not consistently applying doctrine to your life, then the Bible says you're a liar. See, John's not one of those soft people. He has a nice, gentle way about him, and he, he doesn't um, uh, have a real abrasive edges, and he doesn't talk in a, in a, and write with a uh, deep vocabulary and lengthy constructions as Paul does, but... He doesn't back off of the truth. He just says you're just a liar. He just tells it right to your face that if you're not uh, applying Scripture and you claim to know him, then you're a liar and the truth is not in him. There's no doctrine in you. You don't understand doctrine. There's no relationship with the truth there. In contrast, whoever keeps his word, that is keeping the word in fellowship. This isn't somebody who's a legalist who's just out there doing what the Bible says, but this is. it's understood that this is keeping the word in Him. It's interesting, I was discussing this with a friend of mine on the telephone this last week. He called me up and we were talking about some other factors. And he went to this verse and he said, I think, and this guy was not a, is not a trained theologian, although he did spend uh, a short amount of time in seminary at one time. Whoever keeps his word, he says, In him must be understood there. And he's exactly right. That, that whoever keeps his word in him, because if you keep his word and you 're out of fellowship, you 're operating on the sin nature, and it 's nothing more than morality and doesn 't have anything to do with spiritual growth and what what clicked in my mind as soon as he said that was that 's the exact same style Jesus used over in John fifteen. He starts off that when he says, "The one who is in me bears much fruit, he doesn 't use the word abide. he leaves the verb out at the beginning. And he doesn't supply the verb until later on. But every other time in, first, I mean in John 15, one through 6 every time he says in me, it's preceded by the verb abide, except for the first time he says in me. And so John follows that same kind of style here. First time he says keeps his word, he doesn't mention in him. But from that point on, it is clear that he's talking about keeping his word in him. So whoever keeps his word in him, that is in fellowship, is understood to be there. Truly, the love of God, the love for God, is matured in him. Now, let's stop a minute, because if we're going to comprehend and apply the principles that John is outlining here, we have to understand the relationship of fundamental spiritual dynamics and spiritual skills. Now, these are familiar to most of you. And at the risk of becoming a little tedious and boring for some of you, we're going to go over this again and again. That's the importance of repetition in learning things. That's the only way you really learn anything is to go over it again and again and again. Uh, Anyone who ever aspired to be a musician of any quality knows that you didn't get there by just learning what the notes on the scale were and how to play them once or twice On your instrument. You have to practice over and over and over again until everybody in your household is absolutely sick of hearing you play that particular piece. So we have to go over this again and again. Foundational baby... Problem-solving devices, stress busters, I call them different things. These are spiritual skills that we have to practice again and again and again. And the reason these are the first ones is because everything else is built on them. And they contain within them the basic, the basic seeds of the advanced spiritual skills. The first one is confession. That gets us back in fellowship. If we're not in fellowship, it's all wood, hay, and straw, according to 1 Corinthians 3. And it does not count for eternity. It's done in the power of the flesh. When we confess our sins, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and we are to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. Filling of the Holy Spirit indicates His dynamic in teaching us the Word of God and filling our thinking up with doctrine. And walking by the Holy Spirit, the walking emphasizes staying in fellowship. We could even call this abiding. It is not just getting there, bouncing out, bouncing back. It's walking. It's forward momentum. That's foundational. Then we have the faith rest drill, where we learn to mix faith with the promises of God. To execute the faith rest drill presupposes you know promises. That's why I emphasize in the uh, training for the children downstairs is that they memorize Bible verses. Because if you don't have promises at your beck and call in your mind, then how can you mix faith with promises? From there, we move to grace orientation. Grace orientation means that we align our thinking with God's principle of grace, that it's not based on who and what we are, but who and what He is. Grace orientation is foundational to love. If you don't understand grace, you can't understand love, period. And if you are uh, someone here, and there's many people here who are not married, and some of you who are married need to understand this, that if you don't understand grace, you will never understand how to have a successful relationship in marriage because grace underlies the entire concept of love it's unmerited favor you cannot operate in a marriage on the basis of my love is conditioned on how the other person uh, operates how they look what they do because people are all sinners and the person you're united with in marriage as much as perfect as you might think they are before you get married uh well after you're married you'll discover that they are a sinner And you have to use impersonal love at times and unconditional love in order to uh, continue to be married to that person. Sometimes that's extremely difficult and sometimes it's not so difficult. But if you don't understand grace and the concept of unmerited and unearned favor, then you can never understand love because Love for one another, the kind of virtue love that undergirds a marriage, is based upon the example of God's gracious love for us in salvation. So grace orientation, it involves humility. It involves teachability. It involves understanding that it's not the details of life that matter. It is our relationship with the Lord that matters. If you don't understand that in grace, then you'll never get to the adolescent uh spiritual skill which is the personal sense of eternal destiny so grace orientation includes a number of facets that are all related to advanced spiritual skills so here we have grace orientation and then the uh, fifth one is doctrinal orientation which means aligning our thinking with god's plan and god's word so that these are the five basic spiritual skills that we need to get out of diapers and to start growing and maturing spiritually. And that means you practice them day in and day out again and again and again in order to advance. Now, once you get, begin to get those under control, then you start working on the next one, which is the major transition skill, which I call developing a personal sense of eternal destiny. Suddenly you begin to realize that you're living your life not for today and not for tomorrow, but you're living your life for eternity. That when all is said and done and we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, we will realize that everything we did in life is going to determine our rewards and inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ, which in turn determines our position and place in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. So what you decide to do today will determine what you will be in eternity. Every decision matters. The the, uh, young child or teenager frequently uh, makes decisions simply based on what's going to happen in the next hour or that afternoon. They want immediate gratification. One sign of maturity is the ability to postpone gratification because you are developing a sense of time that not everything is immediate, and when we've been in eternity for about a billion years, we're going to realize that that amount of time that we had as a sinner on Earth was just a speck, uh, uh, like like one speck of sand on all the beaches on in all the Earth. It's going to be nothing. What we're going—that's why Paul says in Romans chapter eight. That the suffering we encounter now is nothing compared with the glory of all eternity. It will disappear and vanish and we'll never and we won't remember it at all. So we develop a sense of eternity, that we're living for our eternal destiny, not for personal pleasure, comfort, security today. And then we get into the advanced skills. Now this is what John's focusing on in this second part of the introduction. The first part of the introduction focused on staying in fellowship, walking in the light, and ad- advancing as an infant. Now he's going to get into the advanced skills, and there's three that relate to the concept of love. The final one, the ultimate, is we share the happiness of Christ. We have inner happiness. James says, count it all joy in James 1.3, and he, then the rest of the book tells you how to do that. It is the uh, climax or the, uh, the, the penthouse of our spiritual growth. But we have a love triplex. It involves three things. It involves our personal love for God the Father, which then becomes a motivation. When we come out of adolescence, we have developed personal love for God. It's not that we have to wait till we're here to get it. It starts here. As we're learning grace orientation, we begin to respond in love for God as we learn some promises we begin to learn to love God we, we, in doctrinal orientation we learn more about him and that love for God grows but it becomes a major factor here reaches a maturity when we get here that's what Paul uh, or what John is talking about when he says in verse 5 but whoever keeps his word now you've had some doctrinal orientation and you're consistently keeping the word the love for for God, personal love for God, the love for God is brought to completion. See, that's a process. So now you get to personal love for God the Father. Now that's going to be the foundation for being able to have impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind. Impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind, which is the new commandment that Jesus gave. The disciples. That then increases our focus on Jesus Christ. This is what would Jesus do? Living our lives as Jesus lived, walking as Jesus walked. And the more we learn about uh, promises, the faith rest drill, the more we learn about God's grace for us, the more we learn about who and what Jesus Christ did in doctrinal orientation, it develops our love for God. We then understand the cross, so we understand what real love is all about. And then we, under, we, we realize all that Christ did for us, and he becomes the model for our thinking and our living. So this doesn't happen overnight. It is a process, and we have to master these spiritual skills. Now, this is what enables a person to do. I mean, I'm going to apply this in a couple of weeks or longer when we get into Daniel uh, chapter 3. What do you think enabled those three young men, originally Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what enabled them to solve that problem of being told that they had to worship the idol or they would be thrown into the fiery furnace? Talk about overt pressure. Talk about peer pressure. All of the weight and force and power and might of the great, one of the greatest uh, empires in all of human history was brought down on those three men to worship that idol. What gave those young people the strength to withstand that kind of pressure? Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that was because starting with, with, depending on the teacher, this week, next week, your kids in the first hour. Are have been taught all year about the problem-solving devices, and they're beginning to learn about impersonal love. And see, if you want your kids to end up like those two boys at Columbine or some of these other kids who don't know how to handle adversity, rejection, the pressure of other kids, bullies... Uh, all of the things that are going on in school today, if you, don't, if you want them to end up like that, then just don't teach them anything about impersonal love. Because what enables us to stand firm and not be shaken by that kind of pressure, by the bullies, by the people who reject us, by all of the insults that, that might come our way, and kids can be incredibly harsh and mean to other kids, what enables us to take to, to walk through that kind of a, a, a testing is because we have a sense of our own identity of who and what we are, and as believers, that comes from our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and I think that it is crucial for parents to be teaching these things to their kids in the home and showing them how to apply them in order to strengthen their Soul so that they can handle that kind of rejection, hostility that they face in the world. The problems that we have today, the, the, the increase in anger, you have road rage, you have all kinds of rages people talk about today, and, and people the anger among young people today is almost palpable in some schools because they're so resentful of their parents, they're resentful of school, that, that parents are too busy with their lives, haven't paid any attention to the kids, and the kids are reacting in anger. You have all kinds of things going on. And as a result, those kids are striking out at other kids. They're they're bullying other kids. How do you train your children to be able to withstand that? And I'm not just talking about the opposition they'll face as a believer trying to take a stand for Christ. That takes it to another level. But in Daniel, we see those young men who are 12, 13 years of age able to take a stand against the greatest pressure, pressure like none of us will ever face in life, and, and do it very smoothly because they have a sense of who they are. They have, they have moved from understanding the basics in, this, in the spiritual life. They understand the faith rest drill because they had promises from Isaiah that they know they're going to live and serve in the kingdom of, um, of Babylon. They understand grace. They, they understand that their eternal destiny is in heaven, so it doesn't matter if they go into the fiery furnace because they're not going to be in the eternal fires of hell. So life is, physical life on this earth is not more precious to them than their morals, than their standards, than their relationship with God. So that means they've developed a personal sense of eternal destiny. They know that they are living for eternity and they're living for the kingdom of God and therefore they have to take a stand against the kingdom of man. They have a love for God and they are focused on Him in such a way that they're going to be able to say that our God can deliver us, but even if He doesn't, we're still going to be completely loyal and devoted to Him and we won't bow down to the idol. What is it that gives them at that young age the strength, the stability, the confidence to stand firm against that kind of pressure. It's doctrine in the soul. And if they can do it, there's not a kid in this church that can't also do that. But see, they had something that kids in this church might not have. And that is parents who consistently drilled doctrine into them when they were growing up and taught them day in and day out and helped... Uh, them understand how to apply doctrine and model that for them because their parents understood these things. And, this is, and I think that this whole concept, the whole doctrine of impersonal love is crucial to developing that kind of strength so that you can withstand that opposition because impersonal love is being able, ultimately, it's being able to show love kindness and gentleness to those who are in opposition to us, those who reject us, those who are hostile to us, those who are not attractive to us, those who are our personal enmity, enemies and who are at enmity with us. And that is the, gives us the stability to survive in those kinds of situations. That's how it functions as a problem-solving Device. So in verses 3 through 6, John establishes the basic principles of keeping his word and abiding in him and following the pattern of Jesus' life. And then in verse 7, he shifts and he says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you. Now, we need to stop a few minutes and we need to exegete the next few verses to understand them correctly. And then we're going to deal with the application Probably take a couple of weeks to develop the doctrine of unconditional or impersonal love. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you. He uses the uh, uh, address of uh, agapetoi. Now, I'm reading in the New King James Version, which is based on a bad translation at that point. The, the Greek reads agapetoi, which looks like this. New American Standard has a correct beloved, agapetoi, is from the word agapas. Agapas means love. Now the word for um, brother looks like that, a d e l p h o i, like at the end of Philadelphia. Now it's not. It's difficult to mistake one of those words for another word. But beloved emphasizes position in Christ. Because we are in Christ, we are beloved of God. Paul uses the word brethren. James uses the word brethren. But John uses the word agapetoi, beloved. It's just a stylistic difference. But it's still emphasizing the same positional truth doctrine, that he's addressing believers. Now, that's crucial. John's not addressing unbelievers or people who he thinks might not be believers. He is addressing people that he knows are believers. So he says, "Beloved." This is a term for members of the royal family of God. Any person who has put their faith alone in Christ alone at that point is adopted as a son of God, a child of God, and enters into the royal family. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. It is by faith alone in Christ alone that we enter into God's family, and that happens at the instant of salvation. So John is writing to believers, and he says, I write no new commandment to you, and there he uses an epistolary eris, meaning that uh, at this instant I'm writing, I mean, excuse me, an epistolary present, uh, that he is writing at this instant a new commandment. No new commandment. Now he uses the word here for new, he uses the word Uh, Kainos. And this is the word that is used to describe, when you talk about the New Testament, it's kine diatheke, the new commandment. And it's not a new in the sense of a new kind or something unprecedented. Um, Excuse me, it refers to something that is a new kind, something that's unprecedented, something that is previously unrevealed. The word neos which is a synonym for uh, kinos for new, refers to something that is either new or recent. Kine refers to something that, that is uh, previously unrevealed. So he says, I'm not writing something to you that hasn't been revealed or that you're unaware of that I haven't already taught you. You were taught this when I was there as your pastor. Remembering he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor, primarily Ephesus. He taught them this. He says, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. And the from the beginning there is not talking about from the beginning of time, like Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. It's not ta- our, our before eternity or from the beginning of time, like John 1.1. 1, 1. It's not even talking about from the beginning of Christ's life, like in 1 John 1. It's talking about from the beginning of your personal Christian life, when you are beginning to learn doctrine. This is not a new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning Of your Christian life. You've been taught this again and again and again. And then he says the old commandment. Now, first he says it's it's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. It's the word which you heard. And the word there is translated from the Greek word logos, meaning the message. This is the same message that he's talked about going all the way back into... Uh, verse 1, the message of life, the logos of life. That this is, he explains in verse 3 of chapter 1, this is that message which we have seen and heard, which we declare to you. So he's, he's expanding on that message idea. This is the old commandment, uh, which is the message which you heard from the beginning of your Christian life. So they've been taught this. And then in verse 8 he says again, a new commandment I write to you. First, he says, I'm not writing. It's not a new commandment, but it is a new commandment. See, it's not a new commandment in their experience being taught. They've been taught this again and again and again. But it is a new commandment in terms of the church age. It's not a new commandment in their experience, but it is in the church age. And that goes back to what Jesus said in John thirteen thirty four. In the upper room, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, Jesus calls it a new commandment. But it sounds like an old commandment, doesn't it? The Old Testament says that we're to love uh, your neighbor as yourself. But see, what's the difference there? In the Old Testament, the command was love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the comparative? The comparative is self. And the point in the way that was phrased in the Old Testament, and we'll see that it's quoted in a couple of different passages in the New Testament, is that every person is a sinner. We're all born with self-love. We put ourselves first. We're self-absorbed. Well, what the focus that god is making under the mosaic law is you need to rather than focus on yourself you need to focus on other people put other people first see they can't love as christ loved because number one christ has not come yet number two they don't have the holy spirit when that passage in is quoted in Galatians 5.14, to love others as yourself, it is immediately followed by the mechanics to fulfill the love command, which is walk by means of the Spirit. Five verses later, it's explained that this is a production of the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is first what? Love. The reason Paul listed love first in that grocery list of character transformations that take place in the believer's life as a result of the Holy Spirit is because he's talking about love. Love is going to be related to other characteristics, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Those are facets of impersonal love. It's not simply an absence of negative mental attitude sins, such as an absence of bitterness, jealousy, anger, hatred. There's something positive to impersonal love and unconditional love, and that is that it involves gentleness and kindness to somebody who's, who may be hostile to you, somebody that may be rejecting to you, somebody who is is not someone you are drawn to in any sort of attractive capacity. And that is why in the New Testament, the model, the comparison is no longer love one another as love your neighbor as you love yourself. But it is now love one another as I loved you. It's stepped up. The, the demand is increased. Because the comparison now is with the perfect love of the Lord Jesus Christ for rebellious, hostile sinners. Romans five. Eight says, But God demonstrated His love. This is impersonal love. God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, God's love for us did not involve simply an absence of mental attitude sins. It didn't involve just the fact that God was not going to be angry, jealous, bitter towards man. It involved the fact that God was going to do something that cost him something in order to provide salvation for a race that he had created in his image that had rebelled against him and that was completely hostile to him. That's this new kind of love that Jesus said is to be the mark of the mature believer and the Christian disciple in the church age. It is a new commandment. And John emphasizes this new commandment again and again in his Writings in Second John 1.5 he says and now I ask you lady which is his uh, address to the local church he calls her a lady now I ask you lady not as writing to you a new commandment but the one which you have had from the beginning that we love one another what's the new commandment? that we love one another First John 3.23 he says and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ And love one another just as he commanded us. So he includes two things. John has a way of summarizing several things into just one commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the starting point, entry point into the spiritual life. And then he he summarizes the whole spiritual life under the category of loving one another. Because this is what is going to characterize the mature believer. So he takes one of the most the, the most difficult concepts, the most difficult of the spiritual skills that we can't get any other way other than through the Holy Spirit. We can't produce it on our own. We can't wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to start loving people. It's a production of God the Holy Spirit. You get there by studying doctrine, learning doctrine under the filling of God the Holy Spirit day in and day out. And as the Holy Spirit works, he produces maturity. And one day you wake up and you begin to realize that you're executing this mandate in your life. It's produced by God the Holy Spirit. It's not self-generated. First John 4.21, he says, This commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God, personal love for God, should love his brother also. Notice the relationship. Love for God precedes love for one another. Why? It's because love for God becomes the motivation for loving one another. It's love for God that gives us the virtue so that we can love one another. Love without virtue is meaningless. And the only way that we can have virtue in our love is by making God first. And if God is not the priority, doctrine is not the priority, and we haven't come to love God, then whatever love we have for other people is going to be tainted by our spiritual immaturity and our carnality. So if you get married to somebody who is spiritually immature or is not a believer, then their love, their claim for love is no better than their integrity. And if they're not an advancing believer, then that integrity is too weak to give credibility to a claim for love. They probably aren't even sure what love is. All they know is they have some sort of feeling. See, that, it's the same thing that happens. In Christianity, you get people who think, oh, I love Jesus. They've generated this concept of what they think Jesus is like, and then they fall in love with it. Well, they're in love with their own emotion. And that's what happens in most marriages. People get together, and they have a good time together, and they feel good together, and they identify that as love, this rosy glow, this excitement, this stimulation, and they, they, they love it. It makes them feel good, and they're in love with their own emotion. And they're not in love with the other person. They're just in love with the way they feel when the other person treats them the way they do. So when they get together, and they get married, and they stand up in front of the preacher... And what, and they, they, they listen to the vows. What they're really saying is, yes, I'm going to give you the opportunity and the privilege so that for the rest of your life you can make me feel this way so that I can be happy and have meaning in life because you make me feel good. It's self-centered because love is not self-centered. And until they understand what real non-selfish giving love is, which is exemplified by Christ on the cross... They don't have a concept of what it means to say, I love you. So most people run around thinking that love has something to do with emotion and sentiment and something that is rather superficial. And then as soon as life begins to get tough, they fall apart. And the marriage falls apart. But remember, in the marriage vows, remember, they say something about for better for worse. As soon as it gets worse, they're gone. And it says something about... "...in sickness and in health." So what happens if six weeks after you get married, that person contracts some terrible disease or is involved in some uh, crippling accident, and then they're debilitated for the rest of their life? Those were just words, or did they mean something? See, love is not based on something in the object for it to have any value. That's why it's called unconditional love. But unconditional love presupposes that the person that says they have it has something in their character, something of substance called integrity or virtue. And, of course, for the believer, that can only come from advancing in the spiritual life. John fifteen twelve through 15, Jesus expanded on the concept, and he said, This is my commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you. So if we're going to start learning anything about impersonal love, it has to start with Christ. It has to start with the cross. That Jesus Christ was executing love towards people who were obnoxious to him. People who were unattractive to him. People who were sinners. People who were fallen. People who were clothed in filthy rags. People who, in terms of his own standard of absolute righteousness, absolutely reeked and stank to high heaven and yet He gave His life as a substitute for them. God the Father sent His Son, made the ultimate sacrifice so that His Son became a creature, identified with those creatures, and then bore in His body on the cross every single sin that they would commit in human history. That's where love starts. If you don't understand that, you can't understand love in any realm, in any dimension. It starts there. And that's why we, we, the reason we call it impersonal love is be, not because it's, it's a mechanical thing, not because there's nothing personal involved, but because you don't have to know the person. There doesn't have to be a personal relationship there in order to love them. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for every person in human history, he didn't have a personal relationship with one of them because they were all fallen. And that's what gives us the ability to demonstrate this kind of love to people you run into in the supermarket, people who cut you off in traffic that you don't know. You don't even know what they look like. You're not even sure if it's a man or a woman. But you can execute and demonstrate this kind of love to people you don't know because it's not based on who and what they are, but on who and what Jesus Christ is and what He did on the cross. That's why it's impersonal. It's unconditional because it's not based on anything on that person. There's no conditions. You're not saying, well, as long as you look a certain way, uh, maintain a certain weight, uh, act a certain way, keep your health, make money, keep your job, uh, don't have a bad attitude, uh, as long as you, whatever it is, fill in the blank, establish your own conditions, then I'll love you. Now, unconditional love means I'm loving you on the basis, not of who and what I am, because I'm still a sinner, but on the basis of who God is, because I Understanding that as a growing believer and on what Christ did on the cross because that's my model. That's the standard. And Christ loves me even when I reject him. Christ continues to love me and his love never diminishes. It never increases. It stays the same. And that's the standard. So Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one in this that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves. The slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So love is related to knowledge and knowledge about God. So our understanding of impersonal love starts with understanding the cross, and then it advances from there, and we will begin to fill in those gaps next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time together to be challenged once again with this new commandment that that summarizes the spiritual life, and that is our love for one another. This is not something that happens overnight. It is not to be confused with sentiment or emotion or some sort of feeling, but it is a result of growing and maturing in our relationship with you, and that this is a love that is produced by God the Holy Spirit in our life as part of our spiritual advance. Father, we thank you for the example that you have given us in the uh, salvation that you provided for us through the substitutionary spiritual death of Christ on the cross. That he went to the cross and there he paid the penalty for our sins. And that is our supreme example of what love is. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would, that they would take this opportunity to make that that both sure and certain. That salvation is by no other name under heaven. It is only through faith alone, in Christ alone. And right now, right where you sit, you can make that sure and certain by simply trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we're learning, that we would realize that it is through impersonal love that we are able to solve problems in relationship, especially with those who reject us, who are negative toward us, who are hostile toward us, and that in turn we can treat them in kindness and gentleness and goodness but only because of what you have done for us in that example. Now, Father, we commit these things to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.